David Brooks, he is a columnist for the New York Times. He writes, he used to write about politics, but now he's sort of, like all of us, he's just burned out on it all and sick of it. Now he writes about morality in the culture that we live in. And he recently published a book titled, The Second Mountain, A Quest for the Moral Life. And he says in this book, he says that many people see life as a mountain to climb. It's something to conquer. But Brooks says that the most well-formed, most inspiring people, most mature people, most joyful people, it's not that life is a mountain for them to conquer. He says the, the most mature people actually climb two mountains in their life. He says, he says the goals on the first mountain, those are the normal goals that our culture endorses. To be a success, to be well thought of, to get invited into all the right social circles, and to experience personal happiness. It's all the normal stuff. Nice home, nice family, nice vacations, good food, good friends, and so on. That's the first mountain. And those are good things. Those are things that are worth pursuing. But as Brooks points out in his book, that those things are not everything. And for many people, one of two things happen. Most of us spend our up in most of our 20s trying to conquer the first mountain, all the way up to our 20s, our late 20s, maybe our early 30s. He's, but Brooks points out that many people, one of two things happens. They conquer the first mountain. They achieve success. They, achieve, they, gain, they attain everything they're seeking. And then they get to the top of the mountain and they ask, is this all there is? I think of Tom Brady in the 60 Minutes interview. Why do I have 100,000 Super Bowl rings, a supermodel wife, all the money in the world? And he says in an interview, he says, why do I have all these things and yet still feel like there's something more? And the interviewer said, what do you think that is? And he, you hear him crack. Like he almost gets to tears. He says, my God, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. That's Tom Brady. Many of us will get to the top of the first mountain and we'll go, is this it? And that sends us on a journey for something more, something deeper, something more meaningful. Now, others of us, we might not conquer the first mountain. What might happen is during our climb up the first mountain, we face immense suffering and we get knocked off of it. Death of a child, death of someone you love, cancer scare, addiction, some life-altering tragedy. For some of us, we get knocked off of the mountain by our own failure. We make a mess of our lives. Something happens to our career, our marriage, our family, our reputation. Whatever the cause, many people, whether through success or suffering or failure, will find themselves knocked off of the first mountain, wondering who they really are. And wondering if there's more in this life worth pursuing than success and individual happiness. And some people, get, they get knocked off the first mountain, but then they stubbornly keep trying to climb the first mountain, and they do that their whole lives, and they waste away their lives, and they never learn from their mistakes, and they never grow. And it's sad. It's sad to see. But the wise, David Brooks says, they go on a quest for something more. And these people, he says, realize that there's, a, there's another bigger mountain to climb, the second mountain. And this is the mountain where instead of achieving success, seeking success, we reckon with our true selves and our calling on this earth. It's where we experience self-awareness, come to terms with our flaws. We shift from selfishness to others-centeredness, selflessness. 
These are people who are the people who, who climb the second mountain. These are people who don't just simply live out the script that was given to them at birth. Or these aren't simply people that live for the approval of others. These are people who live with a sense of purpose and a sense of commitment and a willingness to endure pain to achieve what they believe is most important in this life. And now listen, I hear about that and I read this book. I'm like, that's the type of person I want to become. I want to be a person who, who climbs the second mountain, not just the first. And I think in today's text, we see Moses fall off of his first mountain and begin to climb his second. And you will see this has to happen. You'll see as we continue through this study through Exodus, it has to happen. Moses has to live out the... If Moses is going to live out the purpose that God has for him, he has to first come to grips with who he is. His flaws, his pain, his past. He has to put his past behind him, his selfishness behind him, so that he can lead others to freedom. He has to experience freedom first before he can deliver others to freedom as a leader. And now the last time we saw Moses, last week, he was a three-month-old. Moses was put, he was born an Israelite, but there was, you know, childhood infanticide happening in Israel or in Egypt at the time. He was born as a Hebrew into a Hebrew, into an Israelite family, but his mother put him in a basket, pushed him down the river, and he was brought into Pharaoh's home, adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And think about what a challenging childhood that must be. A very interesting childhood. He's born as a Hebrew, as an Israelite an oppressed minority in Egypt, but yet at the same time, he's raised in the upper echelons of Egyptian culture. He's raised in the palace, in the best schools, connected to the most powerful people, going to all the dinner parties and wears all the best clothes. He had it all. But at the same time, here he is, he knows that by birth, he's a Hebrew, the people who are working as slaves outside of the palace. Now think about what a confusing childhood that must have been. I mean, have you ever thought about that? Have you ever tried to imagine how confusing that would be? How traumatic that might be? Being from an oppressed minority group, but growing up among the people that are the oppressors. And the central question of Moses' adolescence was probably, like, I mean, who am I? Like, am I Egyptian? Am I Hebrew? Am I, am I like, what, who am I? What does my life mean? With whom do I side? And with whom do I feel compassion? With? Well, that's a confusing, confusing childhood. And can you imagine how just disorienting that would be as a child growing up in that? That's the environment that Moses grew up in. Now we get to our text for the day. Chapter 2, verse 11. It says, one day when Moses had grown up. Acts chapter 7 Stephen, before he's killed, talks about Moses, and he says that Moses was 40 years old at this point. So Moses had grown up. He's 40 years old. He went out to his people. Now, Moses is the author of Exodus. This is his narration. He's writing about himself in the third person. It's interesting that he says to his people, and he looked on their burdens. See, that shows that he was wrestling with a question of identity. He's like, his people. But at this point, he's still Egyptian. But it says he goes out for a walk, basically, to go look on the burdens of his people. Now, it's hard for me. Now, I've got little girls that are all into princesses right now. I kind of imagine Jasmine, Princess Jasmine, you know, putting on the robe and then going out and walking around, was it Azkaba or whatever? And she's like, like seeing what all the peasants are up to. 
That's sort of what Moses is doing. He goes out into, the, 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 into Egypt and he's observing what his people, the, the Hebrews, are going through. And he, perhaps as he's watching their lives, as he, as he sees the, the scars on their back from the whips and he sees them being tormented and oppressed, perhaps he's imagining what his life might have been if he had not been adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And maybe he's feeling guilt, maybe he's feel, feeling shame for being royal while all this is happening. Just, there's a lot of, can you imagine the confusion? And like many of us, Moses, he probably had not handled the questions of his identity very well up to this point. His anger, his confusion about his childhood, he probably just stuffed those feelings down. All those conflicting feelings about who he was, the trauma and the confusion of his childhood. And perhaps he just, you know that question of who am I? Like, who am I really? You know how we have, we have a tendency when we feel it in our heads, we're like, who am I? And then we just like, oh, I'll think about Netflix. I don't want to think about that right now. Perhaps Moses just put off that question entirely and stuffed it down and stuffed it down and stuffed it down. But what happens when you stuff things down? They eventually come back up. When you stuff the painful emotions down, they eventually come back up. And that's exactly what happens with Moses. It says here, it says that he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew one of his people. And so he looked this way and that. And seeing that there was no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. He just killed a dude. And now right here we see a little bit of Moses' personality on display. His humanity, his inner life. We see that Moses is an advocate. He's a challenger. He's a disruptor. He has angst in his soul. And he hates injustice. He hates seeing people control others. And when he sees something unjust or wrong happening, he has an internal drive to take care of it. And so he does it. I mean, he, he goes after the guy that's, uh, that's beating a, a Hebrew. But we also see his flaws. He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and instead of, like, he just goes into a murderous rage. That's what he does. He goes from zero to 100 like that. And he was rightfully angry, right? I mean, when you see oppression, you ought to be angry. But his anger was not fruitful. And it led to a very poor, very wrong decision. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry at injustice, but do not let your anger lead you into sin. And Moses, his anger at the injustice led him into sin. So he had a right motivation, but he didn't know how to handle his emotions, and it resulted in him killing someone. And it says the very next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And the man answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? You mean to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses became afraid and he thought, surely this thing is known. Well, then Pharaoh heard of it and he sought to kill Moses. And Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and he sat down by a well. So here's what happened. Moses kind of felt a little strong after killing this Egyptian who was beating on the Hebrew, on the Israelite. And so the very next day, he's got a little swagger. He feels good about fighting for justice, he, helping the vulnerable. And it, it's almost, it almost seems like it reads like he goes out into Egypt, uh, Egypt again looking for another case to solve. Like he's some kind of vigilante superhero. And so he's like, I'm, I'm going to go break up another fight. Like friendly neighborhood, you know, Spider-Man or whatever. And, he, and they look at him and he's like trying to break up the fight. And they're like, who do you think you are? Who made, who made you a vigil? Who made you the judge of us? 
And then they look at him and they're like, and we already know what you did yesterday. You going to do that to us? So word was getting around among the slaves. So what had probably happened is the guy who Moses had saved went back and was like, yo, Moses just killed a dude. And all the slaves find out about it. Well, now we find out that Pharaoh has found out about it as well. And he heard of it. And now he's trying to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and he stayed in the land of Midian and he sat down by a well. And so here's what we've seen so far in Moses' life. Confusing childhood, some trauma, questions of who he is, what's his identity, probably some unresolved anger and emotion. And it all comes to the surface. His unresolved issues, his questions of identity all come to the surface in this one moment and makes everything worse. He's no longer welcome in Pharaoh's house. He's not Egyptian enough anymore. Yet the Israelites haven't affirmed him as one of them either. He's not Hebrew enough. And now he's forced to flee into the wilderness completely alone into obscurity. And this is the first great failure we see of Moses' life. And any of you who have failed miserably in this room, you know that failure has a way of making us ask the hard questions of our lives. The who am I questions. And we see, this is where we see Moses. It says he's sitting down by a well. And the imagery there is that he's pondering what has become of his life. And now we're not sure the passage of time, but he settles in Midian near a well. He's living in solitude alone. And then one day, says verse 16, Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up, and saved them and watered their flock. Moses to the rescue again. The deliverer is back at it. Now, we don't have all the details here, but what we know, basically, is some bad shepherds come in, and they're giving these innocent women a hard time, and they're not allowing these women to get the water that they need for their family, and they're driving them away from the well where where they were trying to get water, perhaps mistreating them in some way. Moses sees it. He drives them away, like he regulates the situation somehow, and then, so he gets the shepherds away, and then it says he waters their flock. And see, the personality of Moses as a challenger, an advocate, a rescuer, a deliverer, this is who God is preparing him to be, is coming more and more into focus. But we actually see some growth in him this time. Moses is not self-centered this time around. It actually says, he, he doesn't use violence this time around either. He, it just says he drove them away. But after he rescues these these women, it says he serves them. He waters their flock. Men wouldn't do that. That was the job of a woman. Especially not, it's not what an Egyptian would do. But he waters their flock. That's not something that men ordinarily did. He served them. So not only does he deliver them, but he serves them. Deacons, that's what a leader is. A leader is someone who not only strategizes for the church, but serves the church. And it says, look at verse 18, it says, When they came home to their father, Ruel, He said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? And they said, well, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds. And he even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, and you let him get away? (laughs) He said, where is he? Why have you left that man? Call him that he may eat bread. Translation is, he's got seven daughters that he's trying to marry off. And he's like, that's one of the good ones. Like, he's serving, he's, I mean, he's protecting, and he's, like, watering the flock, like, doing the chores. Like, that's the man you want. Get him. Go find him and bring him back. And so they find him, and he comes, and it says Moses was content. Think about that. He's content. Was Moses content 
the, earlier? No. He was content, though, to dwell with the man. And the man gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah, in marriage. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now, these girls go back to their dad, tell him all about this Egyptian that saved them. Their dad gives one of them away in marriage. Moses marries Zipporah. They have a child. He experiences contentment, says he's content in Midian. We see that he's coming to terms with his angst, with his restlessness. He finds contentment. But then it also says he has a son, and he names his son Gershom, which means I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now, it's at this very moment that the narrative of Exodus completely shifts. Next week, we'll see God call Moses to be the deliverer of the Hebrew people. And that's what Moses always wanted to be. Acts 7 says that that was what was in his heart from the beginning. That's what he wanted to be. But that's what was going on in his heart when he killed the Egyptian and when he tried to break up the fight. But he was trying to be a deliverer back then in his own strength. He was trying to do it for himself, for his own glory, to deal with his own issues, to satisfy his own childhood issues. And as you saw, the Israelites were not impressed. They didn't want a a self-appointed leader. They wanted a God-ordained leader. But in order for Moses to be God-ordained, he had to go out into the wilderness and come to find out who he is and who God was. And he wasn't ready back in Egypt. He was too selfish, too volatile. He had not wrestled with his past. He had not wrestled with his shadow side. He had not wrestled with his issues. Before Moses could be the deliverer, there were things that had to be dealt with before he could step into his calling. God had to do a work in him before God could do a work through him. Now, What about you? What issues today are holding you back from being the person that God has called you to be? Are you on the first mountain of life? Still acting out of self-interest? Still acting out of past trauma? Or are you beginning the climb on the second mountain where you are growing beyond those things into the person that God is calling you to be? Now I want to give you some things that we can learn from the life of Moses about what it means to mature and allow God to work within us. First, we must pay attention to what lies beneath the surface in our lives. Um, You know, Mr. Rogers right now, you know, there's like a Tom Hanks movie coming out. Mr. Rogers is experiencing like a lot of hype right now. Like there's documentaries coming out about Mr. Rogers. There's all sorts, Daniel Tiger, if you parents, you know, like that's a Mr. Rogers thing. Like my kids are all into Daniel Tiger. Like Mr. Rogers is kind of experiencing resurgence. Well, I don't know if you've seen the documentary, Mr. Rogers and Me. And in that documentary, one of Mr. Rogers' friends told a story about when Fred was bullied, Fred Rogers was bullied in school. And so Mr. Rogers, when he was a kid, he was bullied in school and some kids were shouting at him one day, and they joined in like a chorus of, you know, kids I mean, teasing him, and they called him Fat Freddy. He was big as a child, and they called him Fat Freddy. And that made him sad, of course. You know, you remember how hard it was to be a kid, but Mr. Rogers later in life, he said he never forgot that. And he said what made him the most sad, though, wasn't that his peers called him Fat Freddy. He said it was that the adults in his life when he would come to them and say, they're teasing me, they're, they're bullying me, they're hurting me, he said what the adults in his life would say to him, just act like it doesn't bother you and they'll leave you alone. And that stuck with him and that bothered him because he said what I needed as a child was not someone to teach me how to stuff my emotions down. 
I needed someone to teach me how to properly handle my emotions so that they wouldn't come bursting out later on into adulthood. And that's what, that is what drove him to be Mr. Rogers and to create Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was to teach children how to process their emotions so that it wouldn't blow up when they become adults and ruin marriages and their children and careers and all that sort of stuff. And I think sometimes we don't respect or we aren't aware of the things that are beneath the surface in our own hearts. And the truth is, those things can be very dangerous. And Moses was struggling with some very big issues in his life. He was confused about his childhood. He was anxious. He was internalizing a lot of anger and frustration. He clearly had not dealt with it well. Because in a moment, it all came to the surface, and he did the unimaginable. He killed a man. And in one moment, he saw the destructive power of his raw and unrefined self. And what did he do? He fled. He got out of there. He didn't walk away. He didn't jog. He fled. He ran as fast and as far away as he could from what he had done. And it says he fled to Midian and sat down at a well. And the imagery there is that he sits and he reflects. And he's like, okay, what just happened? Not like I killed a dude, but like what caused, where did that come from? I don't know if you've ever asked yourself that question. Where did that come from? Henry Nouwen says that suffering that is not transformed will always be transmitted. And that's what happened in Moses' life, and that's what will happen in yours and my life if we don't first deal with what lies beneath the surface. This is precisely what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, he said, he talked about murder. They were like, the Pharisees were asking about murder. And he says, listen, if you've got anger in your heart, you're already guilty of murder. They asked about adultery. He said, you know, if, if you've got lust in your heart, you're already guilty of adultery. Why? Because if you've entertained it in your heart, really the only reason you haven't acted out on it is because you haven't been given the opportunity. And like Moses, remember, he looked this way and he looked that way. And when he saw that no one was watching, he murdered a dude. And that's what Jesus is saying when he says, it's what's in, you got to deal with what's in the heart. Because murder and adultery, those things don't just happen. You don't just, oh man, I just murdered. No. It begins with unresolved, undealt with anger. You don't just wake up one day in somebody else's bed. It's lust that goes unchecked and it leads to a situation like adultery. And Jesus knew that the issues that are unresolved in our hearts will eventually come to the surface. And Jesus himself says, pay attention to what lies beneath. Second thing we learn from Moses is that we must name our struggle. I love how our text this morning ends. It ends with Moses having a child and naming him Gershom. In the Bible, names mean everything. Names mean everything. Like last week we saw that Moses, his name is Moses because Moses literally means to be drawn out of the water. That's who Moses is. But he names his son, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. (laughs) Moses names his, he basically, what he's doing by naming his son sojourner, Moses is naming his past. He's coming to grips with who he is and what has happened in his life. He's admitting that he's never felt at home. And he's admitting that he's never felt at peace among the Egyptians. He's never felt at home among the Hebrews. And this whole question of who am I? I've never felt at home. And it's caused me anger and anxiety and fear and worry. And 
sadness and grief and loneliness, this question of who am I, when he says, he names his son, I am a sojourner, he's explaining, he's going, the thing that's beneath the surface for me, the thing that lies beneath all the anger, all the murder, is the fact that I've never really felt at home. I've never been, been able to know who I am. And this was Moses admitting to himself who he was. Ruth Haley Barton says this was a profound admission. It had taken a very, very long time, but finally Moses was able to acknowledge what was underneath the behavior that had gotten him where he was. He was finally able to admit that all his life he had struggled with his identity and he was mad about it. He's beginning to come to grips with his past. He's beginning to see where his anger came from. And he has this good desire to advocate for the oppressed, this good desire in his heart to advocate for the vulnerable. But he also saw in his own heart this unresolved anger that was keeping him from doing the very thing he wanted to do, which was be a deliverer. And the story of Moses shows us, here's what it shows us. One, it shows us you're not the only person with a confusing childhood. You're not the only one with a traumatic past. And I don't say that to make light of your situation. I say that to encourage you that you're not alone. That you're not alone. And that you are not the only person who has been through what you're going through. But also the life of Moses shows us that our past does not have to dictate our future. It does not have to have the final word. Moses, in this moment, when he names his son, he embraces his struggle. And he named the source of his anger. And, he would no, and he's no longer going to allow it to dictate the course of his life. And this is a crucial moment because before he, would ever, he could ever be able to lead others from slavery, he needed to experience freedom himself. And so he had to name what was keeping him enslaved. You know, at our church, we have a Celebrate Recovery ministry. It meets Monday nights at 7.30 at our office space on Ovington and 4th Avenue. And I love the rawness and the honesty of the, our Celebrate Recovery group. Everyone who has ever been a part of Celebrate Recovery in our church has seen dramatic spiritual growth. And when someone introduces themselves in Celebrate Recovery, the way they do it is they say, my name is, fill in the blank, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and I struggle with, and then they lay it all out there. And they lay it all out there. They don't like, oh, my name is Will, and I struggle with caring too much. No, it's like... It's, I struggle with this, and they lay it all out there. And I know that sounds terrifying to most of you, to some of you. But you ask anyone who has committed themselves to the process of recovery, and they will tell you that there is so much freedom in naming your struggle in the presence of others and in the presence of God. Because when you name it, the scriptures say that it no longer has power over you. The things that are kept in darkness will continue to hide and grow and fester in darkness. But things that are brought to light, they're, they're, they scatter. One of the great promises of the Bible is when you bring your sin, your shame, and your past into the light, you can overcome it because it no longer has power over you. Ephesians 5 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but expose them. Because when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. And then there's a promise from the Scriptures. It says, Therefore, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And this is exactly what happens to Moses here. He awakes from the dead and he names his struggle and we're going to see next week that God appears to him and shines a literal light on him with a fire, a burning bush. 
Name your struggle so that it can no longer have power over you. And then finally, embrace the wilderness. If you want to grow into the person that God has called you to be, you must embrace the wilderness. See, next week we're going to pick up back in the story, but it's going to be another 40 years when we see Moses again. So we know that Moses spends 40 years in the wilderness, in Midian, in Horeb, and out in the middle of nowhere. He spends 40 years in obscurity, tending sheep, raising a family, once a wealthy prince in Egypt, now a poor shepherd in the wilderness. And we read that and we're like, man, how the mighty have fallen. But it is in the wilderness where God is preparing Moses for what he has for him. And all throughout the Bible, you see this theme come up over and over and over again. Someone falls from their place of privilege into the obscurity, monotony, and struggle of the wilderness. But then they emerge from the wilderness, from the pain, having come to terms with who they are and who God is. In the wilderness, that's where Moses learned how to lead sheep. God was preparing him to lead God's people through the desert. In the wilderness, David learned how to be a king. In the wilderness, Jacob saw a stairway to heaven. In the wilderness, Elijah heard the still, small voice. In the wilderness, John the Baptist preached repentance. In the wilderness, the apostle Paul searched the scriptures and prepared for a life of ministry. All throughout the scriptures, people go to the wilderness. It's a place of pain. It's a place of dryness. It's a place of thirst and hunger. But in their thirst and hunger, they are satisfied by God alone. And they come out of the wilderness stronger than when they went in. And they come out with a renewed sense of calling, a renewed sense of purpose, and a renewed sense of power to live out the life that God has called them to live. And I began this sermon by saying that many of us will have failures and setbacks in our lives that force us to reckon with who we are and who we want to become. And those moments feel like wilderness moments, don't they? But if we allow God into these moments, He will use them to prepare us for what lies ahead. And perhaps you're in a wilderness season right now. You are lonely. You feel like you're in obscurity. You feel perhaps like you've lost everything. It's dry, you're hungry, you're thirsty for more, and it's in the wilderness seasons, though, if you will submit yourself to the work of God in you, that he will develop within you and cultivate within you patience and empathy and humility and compassion and reliance and trust on who he is and his provision for you. Do not hate your wilderness seasons. They may be dry, they may be treacherous, but those are the very places where God is going to knock off the rough edges of your soul and mold you into the person that he's calling you to be. Now, you hear this sermon, and you're like, okay, uh, name your past, like deal with your emotions, name your struggle, and you may hear this sermon, and you think, wow, it sounds like modern counseling theory, you know, and Moses is the case study. And if that were the case... You might be better served listening to a podcast from a licensed therapist on dealing with emotional health or childhood trauma. Those are all good things. I see a counselor often. I'm all for counseling. But here's what I want you to see. I'm not a counselor. I'm a preacher of the gospel. And here's what I want you to see in these final moments. Looking beneath the surface of your life, naming your struggle, embracing the pain and the uncertainty of wilderness, those are really difficult things to do. Believe me. But when you see those things, when you see your life in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, those things become possible. How can you have the confidence? I mean, truly. How can you really have the confidence 
to really dig deep into who you are and to really wrestle with your shadow side and really wrestle with your past. If you don't, if you aren't, when going into it, you're not fully 100% confident that you are loved throughout it all. And the cross shows us, the resurrection, the life of Jesus shows us that no matter what we've done, no matter how far we've fallen, no matter how we've failed, no matter what issues we haven't dealt with, and no matter how dirty our thought life or how messed up our emotions may be, we have a God who will never leave us or will never forsake us. We have Jesus Christ who would stick closer than a brother. And I don't know about you, I've in recent years, I've had to dig deep into some counseling stuff to work through my own issues and to begin the journey on my second mountain. And I'm telling you, without the confidence of knowing that I am loved by God and that my eternity is purchased by Christ himself, I could not have the confidence to, do, to wrestle with the things that I've had to wrestle with. See, we know because of Jesus that we can go as deep into the dirt of our lives, but he will never abandon us. And if you look, like just take looking beneath the surface, for example. Looking not just at your actions, but your motive behind your actions. If you don't have Christ alongside you in that, in that exercise, that will lead you to despair. And feelings of worthlessness. And you will feel disgust toward yourself. But the Gospel of, of John says that Jesus knew what was in every man. All throughout Jesus' life, you see him encountering people, prostitutes, tax collectors, drunkards, failures, people with shady lives and shady pasts and traumatic pasts. And he would often take them beneath the surface into the deepest parts of their past and the deepest parts of their pain and their failure so that they could see who they were, but he never left them there alone. He always pulled them out of there and said, you're clean, you're forgiven, you no longer have to be those things that you think you are. And he looked deep into people's hearts, but he wasn't disgusted, he didn't abandon them. It was in those moments where he invited them to be forgiven and to be healed. He invited them to name their struggle, to bring it into light so that he could shine a light on it and so that the darkness would scatter away. He didn't put more shame on them, he lifted it from them. And then we think of the wilderness. Those wilderness seasons can be painful. And I've been there. But because of the cross, I know that Jesus will stay with me and he won't leave me alone in the wilderness. I know that because Jesus faced the ultimate wilderness so that we could have the ultimate rest in the ultimate promised land, that the, my seasons of wilderness do not have the final word over my life. Jesus on the day of his death, was taken outside of the city into the wilderness to be crucified. He was killed. He was placed in a tomb. But he defeated death so that we could live in eternity with him. See, our wilderness is never the final word over our lives. You may spend a lifetime in what feels like a wilderness season. It feels like a life of pain and confusion and dryness. But the promise of the scriptures is that God will never leave you or forsake you. And the promise of the scriptures, Jesus said that he is going to his father and he is preparing a place for you. Moses was left the palace and went out into the wilderness. But Jesus also left the palace, went into the wilderness, but now he's gone back to the palace and he's making our bed so that we can be there for eternity with him. And so we know that we can name our struggle, we can name our past because we know that God's not going to leave us in those things, he's not going to abandon us in those things. And we also know that we can withstand the pain of the wilderness because we know it doesn't last forever. 
And we also know by the lives of all the saints in the past that God works in the wilderness to create in us who he's calling us to be.